Miami-Dade County moves to protect workers from this terrible heat. Florida Atlantic University's president's election is in chaos. But right now, it's all about soccer here. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we'll examine the awful, even deadly heat South Florida is experiencing and why Miami-Dade looks set to approve a new measure to keep outdoor workers safer. We'll also look at Florida's suspension of the process to pick FAU's next president and whether state education officials are playing right-wing politics. And we'll talk about soccer goat Lionel Messi's first appearance here, as well as the Haiti women's team's first appearance in the World Cup. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. A couple of months ago, we warned on this show that it was likely to be really hot in South Florida this summer, but we had no idea it would get this hot. Like much of the rest of the country, we're breaking temperature records here on a seemingly daily basis. And for the first time, Miami-Dade County is issuing excessive heat warnings that just keep getting extended. In fact, right now, we're still under one that was issued last Sunday. So it's no surprise that this week the Miami-Dade County Commission gave unanimous first approval to an ordinance called Que Calor, which means, man, it's hot. That Spanish name took on deeper meaning on Wednesday when a vigil was held in Homestead for a Guatemalan migrant farm worker who is believed to have died from heat exposure earlier this month. Miami-Dade's Que Calor measure, which is expected to get final approval in September, mandates increased protections for outdoor labor. What protections do you think we should be pushing in this heat emergency? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me in the studio to talk about the causes and effects of this oppressive heat is WLRN Environment Editor Jenny Stiletovich. Also joining us is Miami-Dade County's District 9 Commissioner Kiani McGee, who represents Homestead. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Tim. Jenny, let's... Thank you, Tim. Let's first get some of your expert context, Jenny, about the source of this dangerous heat wave as it pertains to South Florida. Is this, in fact, so far Miami's hottest summer on record? This is with the heat index. Um, we are now, Brian McNulty has been tracking this. We're at 40 consecutive days. And if you look oh, back wow. at yeah, some of the numbers, um, the last time... Uh, we had a record, it was 32 days in 2020, um, and before that it was 2017. But if you look at those numbers, th those heat waves or those consecutive days didn't didn't cover, they started later in the summer. Right, okay. So so I think that's what's a little worrisome. We still have a lot more heat to go. Yeah, this this, this ultra-hot June was really the anomaly. Yeah. Right, right. Now, we, we know an unusual heat dome, as it's called, has been sitting over the southern U.S. for weeks now. We know the so-called El Nino phenomenon out in the Pacific Ocean is a factor, but our own ocean waters here are a big factor, right? I mean, what's going on in the Atlantic, the Caribbean, and the Gulf waters 
all around us. So there is a marine heat wave that has covered much of the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean, um, and it is forecast to to extend into September and October. Um, it is very worrisome um, because ongoing heat waves do a lot of damage in in maritime environments. Right, right. Ocean heat waves. Ocean right. heat waves. Uh huh. Yeah, you would you would mention that it's th- this is like something really critical has broken down, as you mentioned to me earlier. Right, right. So, you know, the the, the planet has this really good self-defense system, um, yeah. and it's the ocean, right. and that's one of the things that helps keep us cool. And right now, it feels like the Earth's air conditioner is breaking down. The ocean observes or absorbs, you know, all this this uh, heat trapping carbon that we've been pumping right. into the the atmosphere, um, all that heat and carbon gets soaked up by the oceans. They they cover seventy percent of the planet, um, and so now they're reacting to that. So a tipping point was inevitable. Yeah, it's when I talked to Ben Kurtman at the University of Miami, he said the they see changes in climate um, that tend to like plateau out. Um, and this one is such a big spike. These temperature increases of five degrees and yeah. more. In one place, we had 98 degree water uh, down off the Everglades. And he said it's just bonkers. Wow. So, Commissioner McGee, we know that even before this heat wave struck, Miami-Dade County had taken some measures like working with the National Weather Service to lower the threshold for heat advisories. Was the KCALOR legislation already in the works as well, or is it a response to the current heat emergency? I know, for example, the state legislature had also considered something similar this year, right? Yes, and thank you, Tim, for having us. And absolutely, the reality of it is, is we're dealing with a public health crisis at this moment. Uh, the heat is extremely, extremely um, out of the context of the norm. We also understand that the state legislature attempted to change uh, some of the um, components that are actually in place and or that were not in place to help our outdoor workers. But we took it a step further and we said to the entire Miami-Dade County, as a matter of fact, Tim, we said to the, to the entire world that we're going to have a standard in place that would allow for shade, rest, and water for those who are working outdoors. So the short answer is yes. While many things were happening in the background, Miami-Dade was preparing at, uh, simultaneously to launch this with the help of WeCount and other uh, union or organizations uh, within right. our county. We, we count being one of the uh, major farm worker advocate organizations in South Miami-Dade, right? Yes, sir. Uh, it's an organization that allows for those of us who are farm workers or are farmers to have a voice. They advocate for the opportunity for us to receive shade, water, and rest. And at the end of the day, Tim, when we're looking at all of this, we're really talking about dignity, uh, working with dignity. And that's exact, exactly what this piece of legislation would actually do to the 327,000 workers in Miami-Dade County. Right. And Commissioner, can you then run down for us what you consider the most important new rules and regulations the KCALOR ordinance lays out, especially protections for those outdoor workers? Thank you very much, Tim. And at the end of the day, it is KCALOR. Man, it's really hot out here. And so when when it's really hot out here, we're simply saying that people should have the opportunity to have shade, water, and rest. That's essentially what we're saying to the employers who have five or more employees either in the agricultural sector or in the construction sector. And when the when the heat feels like 90 degrees and you're and you have employees working out there, 50% of the time 
and the and the heat. We're simply saying provide shade, provide water, provide rest. And if you don't do that, then we have some um, um, some 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 civil penalties in place that will help you achieve that goal that we seek. Right now, obviously, many people feel that precautions like those may have saved the life of Guatemalan migrant farm labor Efrain Lopez Garcia, who died on July 6th, an especially hot day, working in a field in Homestead. We're still waiting for autopsy results to confirm his cause of death. But Commissioner McGee, you're convinced Lopez Garcia died of heat stroke? I'm not. Con- I, I, let me just take a step back. I'm sure. not a, uh, uh, someone who uh, a medical examiner. Right. But what I am is a person with common sense. I can tell you that working in the hot sun uh, can cause acute and chronic kidney disease, uh, heat um, um, issues, also heat strokes and heat exhaustion. So as we wait for the, the medical examiner to make the determination of what was the cause of death, I can say while he was in the hot sun, while he was working, pulling the fields and planting beans and planting other vegetables and fruits, we can say that the cause of death um, is something that's going to be left with the medical examiner, but I'm sure there's going to be a contributing factor, and that is going to be the heat. And we, we, we had a, a, another uh, perhaps heat-related death earlier, uh, in in the summer as well, right? That, that that's been a, a big concern uh, for uh, county officials. Uh, yeah, without a question. Listen, at the end of the day, when we're talking about putting individuals disproportionately at risk of suffering heat-related illnesses, we have to take every precautionary standard. Uh, that's in place. And if it's not in place, we must create that standard. And that's what the Miami-Dade heat standard for outdoor workers uh, attempts to do. And right now, we have the full support of our our um, county commission, our mayor, our chief heat officers, alongside of the national organizations who have come in to say, yes, it is, it is, it is too hot out there and these standards need to be in place. But I can assure you, um, short of the death we, we're not even speaking in terms of the hundreds of thousands of people who suffer from the 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 heat-related right. illnesses and strokes and faintness outside in the heat. Right, and Jenny, that's I want to why I want to turn to you now. What is the reality about the number of heat-related deaths we see here and how they're determined? Well, I think this points out that we're not doing a good, very good job of tracking those deaths. When uh-huh. Miami-Dade County wanted to look at heat-related deaths in the county, they had to do a statistical analysis. When they went to the ME's office for the time frame they were looking at, mm-hmm. they only found two confirmed deaths. But then when they looked at all-cause mortalities and compared, which is, you know, any any cla- cause of death, to time frames with extreme heat, they statistically calculated that it was 34. It seems to me like we should just be, we shouldn't rely on statistical analysis. We, we should be able to document these deaths, especially outdoor workers. If somebody dies, it's an unattended death, the ME takes a look. Um, I don't understand why OSHA or the CDC uh, can't do a better job of tracking it. Right, uh, developing better criteria for specifically designating these as, as, as heat-related deaths. Um, I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about South Florida's heat crisis and how to make workers here safer during it. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Now, Jenny, also, can you remind us what scientists are now saying about whether the world still has a chance to get global warming under control? 
<laughs> I think they remain eternally <laughs> optimistic, but yeah. but look, so we are we have warmed up two degrees Fahrenheit. Um, we're trying to keep it under two point seven degrees, so we are just inching closer and closer to that to that cap of two point seven. Yeah. So Commissioner McGee, uh, again, uh, you know, going with what Jenny just said there, I want to ask <laughs> you if climate change is making these kinds of summer conditions the new normal. What other measures beyond outdoor worker protection should local governments like Miami-Dades be taking to mitigate the misery, like, like getting more serious about public transit and building efficiency standards, et cetera? Tim, and, and, and these are the issues that we've been fighting from day, fighting on and fighting uh, for uh, from day one, right? We need better transportation, air-conditioned buses, more air-conditioned buses, making sure that those those bus stops are air conditioned. We need right. more rest stops. But, I, but I'm not just I'm not just talking about air conditioning in, in buses, uh, Commissioner. I'm talking about the county getting serious for a change, many would say, about <laughs> public transit so that we don't have so many cars, you know, uh, spewing uh, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere here. I mean, that's the sort of thing that I think people are wondering if we are serious about global warming mitigation in places like Miami, why not more, you know, uh, metro extension down into South Dade, for example? And, and, and Tim, thank you very much. And that's what we've been pushing for day one. The people of South Dade had been promised the metro rail. We don't want to be in our cars. We don't want to wait in the in the hot sun for a bus. We don't, we, once we get off work, we want to take a, a reliable source of transportation to get from A to Z. Now, what that allows for us is to have a, a decrease in the impact on this um, of emissions that's being let out into our environment. So yes, I do believe the county should and can do a better job in helping the community as it relates to climate change. Secondly, the, the, the county has to get serious and understanding that more should be done and more, and more impact, not simply studies, but more impactful products must be put placed on the streets. That means water fountains. That means water stations and Gatorade stations and, and cooling off stations in order to help us uh, deal with this heat. But I totally agree with you on this one. Um, this is a beginning. Um, I do hope uh, many folk understand that uh, transportation can help. Um, less plastic in our stores and things of that nature can help. And, and less reliant upon gas. Um, and, mm -hmm. and, and other issues that are contributing to the uh, uh, global warming effect that we're seeing. And should this also then uh, mean that we should not keep trying to push the urban development boundary uh, back as so often happens these days? Well, the, the, so we're, we're throwing everything into the pot here. And, and, and listen, everything should be on the table to ensure that climate health um, um, is, is taken seriously in Miami-Dade County. And, and again, I am one of those who understand and who appreciates our agricultural community. I do not believe we should be uh, building more and more concrete jungles past the urban development boundaries uh, within our communities. Um, that's gonna uh, contribute to more of the uh, issues that we're facing with, we're faced today. What I can say is we should put every issue on the on table to protect our outdoor workers and to ensure that our public safety and our and our um, uh, environmental safety 
are at the forefront. Now, and, and Jenny, I know that you have, have always concerned about the county perhaps making building efficiency standards mandatory instead of just voluntary as they are now, correct? That, that, that's right. And, and when we talk about cooling places off, I mean, if we're adding more air conditioners and, you know, that's an energy output. <laughs> so if we put an air conditioner in an inefficient building, we're worsening those kinds of gases that are warming, warming the planet. And, and I wonder, Commissioner, would, would you be interested in making some more of those building efficiency um, rules uh, mandatory? And, and Jenny, I, let, me, let me be absolutely clear here. I am a former prosecutor. My specialty is as, a, as an attorney is a person who deals with facts. If you have the language and you bring your expertise to the table, I would love the opportunity to converse with you so we can make this happen. I understand that you are in a position, along with some of your colleagues, to help push forward an agenda that will protect our environment. So the answer is absolutely yes. Let's do it. I'll be back in town. I'm actually in Austin, Texas right now huh. at the NACO conference. But and it's and it's hot here too, by the way. Um, <laughs> right, I can imagine. <laughs> well, it's I, extremely hot. I, I don't mean to interrupt, <laughs> but I mean. You do have a, a resilience office. You know, you have a chief heat officer, um, no, no, and they've no, made some recommendations. Whom, whom we had no, no, on the no. show not, not, not so long no. ago. But, but no, Jenny, no. And, and, and as, a matter of, as a matter of fact, no, no, those things and, and those recommendations are being taken seriously as we speak. Mm -hmm. And we are having our meetings, and we're going down the list of items that they have recommend, recommended. But what I'm also saying to you, Jenny, if you have some recommendations that you want to provide for us to uh, entertain, we would welcome you. So I'll be back in town uh, as early as Tuesday. And if okay. you have time Wednesday, let's make this work. And Jenny, I, I also want to go back to that issue of hotter ocean temperatures before before we end our segment here, especially how it could affect the upcoming peak of hurricane season. You mentioned that scientists are seeing really bad effects on our coral reefs. What What's all that portending for us. Right. So coral reefs are already in danger. They are one of our best storm surge barriers. Uh, we have the only inshore barrier reef in the U.S. It, it provides protection for billions of dollars of property. Um, I talked to Liv Williamson, who's an assistant scientist at UM this morning. She was out on the reef yesterday. They are already seeing staghorn, um, signs of bleaching in staghorn. Um, they have indicator species that are usually the first to react to warmer temperatures. They are bleaching. Yeah. Um, and if we if we undergo a bleaching event, it will be the first time in 18 years that Florida gets hit by a bleaching. Or, you know, the reefs are still recovering from stony coral or still battling it. Right. So if we if we lose our reef. That also means less storm surge mitigation as well. Right, right. I mean, the mm -hmm. reef, especially staghorn or the coral, the branching coral that shreds storm surge, right. all that powerful, all those waves that slam the coast and cause so much mm -hmm. damage. The right. reef is our best our first line of defense. Right. Finally, Commissioner, in just the 20, minutes, 20 seconds we have left, do you worry that this relentless heat could become one more reason, along with, say, insurance, that people might start leaving Miami and South Florida? Uh, in addition to that, I think we cannot forget the reality that there's legislation that says to some of our outdoor workers that they cannot go to the hospital without first revealing their legal status also. Mm -hmm. So when we think about those items in, uh, together, okay. we come to realize that there may be, and we're starting to see a mass exodus of outdoor workers uh, who no longer want to call Florida home. Right. Okay. I believe that's something that we must um, pay mm -hmm. attention to and we must reverse in order to keep our economy and our environment intact. Kiana McGee is Miami-Dade 
County's District 9 Commissioner Jenny Stiletovich is WLRN's Environment Editor. Thanks very much to you both. Thank you, Tim. Thank you so much for having me. Still to come, Florida Atlantic University's selection of a new president is in political chaos. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Two weeks ago, Florida's state university system suspended Florida Atlantic University's search for a new president. The state university system chancellor, Ray Rodriguez, said he was concerned about what he called anomalies in the FAU search committee's process, including reports of what he would call a controversial questionnaire for candidates. But critics of the suspension say it's no coincidence that it came right after the search committee's three finalists were announced, and those finalists did not include the man thought to be Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's preference, Republican State Representative Randy Fine. They say DeSantis wanted Fine in the FAU post to make the Boca Raton University more like what they say DeSantis is turning New College of Florida in Sarasota into— a higher education laboratory for conservative Christian values. All this makes FAU a new and bitter battlefield in Florida's ongoing culture war. Do you think the state suspension of the FAU presidential selection was a political move? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me in the studio to help sort this out is WLRN education reporter Kate Payne. Also with us is Andrew Goddard, president of the United Faculty of Florida and an English professor at Florida Atlantic University. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Thank Kate, you so much. Kate, let's, let's start with the complaints the state university system chancellor, Ray Rodriguez, raised in his letter to FAU Board of Trustees Chair Brad Levine. Like this questionnaire, Rodriguez claims that FAU President Selection Committee made candidates answer issues like sexual orientation. Are his concerns founded? So the questionnaire at issue here was actually sent by AGB Search, which was the private firm that was hired by FAU. Consulting firm. The consulting Mm -hmm. firm, yes. And so they say, you know, this was a voluntary anonymous survey asking about candidates' diversity Uh, Things like race, gender, sexual orientation. Uh, AGB says that this is a very standard process across their work and across the industry um, and that, you know, this had no connection to candidates' status within the search process, that all the data was disaggregated and, again, voluntary. Mm -hmm. Um, But now the, the FAU Selection Committee claims it wasn't aware the consulting firm it hired had sent out the questionnaire? Correct. Okay. Yeah, that's what FAU says. And, and they said that if they were aware of it, that they would have asked to review the questions ahead of time. Now, Rodriguez announced the state would now be conducting a formal investigation into the FAU presidential search process. What's the status of that now? 
Right. So they've assigned the Board of Governors Inspector Inspector General to conduct an investigation. Rodriguez has said, quote, you know, the process will be thorough, fair, and a determination will not be reached in haste. Essentially, they're, they're going to take their time on this. Um, and he said that the search will remain suspended while this mm-hmm. investigation goes forward. And meanwhile, how have uh, Levine and the FAU trustees responded to Rodriguez's letter? Yeah, FAU Board of Trustees Chair Brad Levine has really defended the university's process. Uh, you know, he said basically it's it's above board and that they're really eager to restart the search as soon as possible. Professor Goddard, how are Florida Atlantic University faculty, students, and supporters reacting to this intervention by the state university system? I know folks like the university's top donor, Dick Schmidt, have expressed pretty bitter displeasure about it. Yeah, we're all angry across the board because if you look at the incredibly weak uh, array of examples that Ray Rodriguez provided in his reasoning for pausing the search, I mean, all of that is ridiculous. This is clearly a partisan attack on what was a fair, transparent, and collaborative process. And listen, what it came down to in the end is that the governor's handpicked candidate, Randy Fine, has zero higher education experience, none. And the three candidates who did come out are very highly qualified and respected candidates. The process worked how it's supposed to work. The fact that, you know, the governor is incapable of selecting a qualified candidate for this role is his problem, not FAU's. So you feel that this this suspension and investigation is really being engineered by Governor DeSantis to ultimately get his guy in? Oh, absolutely. And I can give you some examples. Let's think about this. Where was Ray Rodriguez when the University of Florida clearly had some violations in their sunshine laws as they put forward only Ben Sass as the final candidate for uh, being hired? Ray Rodriguez didn't say anything then. Where was he when Christopher Rufo and the other board of trustees members at New College were on the record referencing that they'd had conversations about hiring Richard Corcoran as the interim president at a higher salary in the dark, not in the sunshine? When they did that on the record and hired him, Ray Rodriguez didn't say anything. But here he's trying to pick apart a straw poll and a survey that voluntarily asked somebody about their gender from a search firm. Like this is complete and utter nonsense. And I would be ashamed if I were Ray Rodriguez to have put my name to it. We have John from Isla Morada on the line. He feels that uh, Governor DeSantis is compromising the quality of the state's university system. John, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Hi, thanks for having me. And so exactly what are your uh, your specific uh, concerns in that regard? Well, the governor won by 20 points, and he thinks he can do anything. He doesn't care about the Constitution. He doesn't care about the Sunshine Law. And he mostly doesn't care about the quality of Florida higher education, unless it's Christo-fascist quality. And that's what he's done, what he has hired at New College. Uh, you should see the, the, uh, the athletic people that he's hired, every one of them. Is, is from a, a second-tier Christian college or a Christian high school. They, right. They're not looking for qualifications. Right. And they're, they're trying to get rid of the upperclassmen that are still there. They, they moved them into uh, moldy rooms uh, to make way for the new Christian athletes that they're bringing in. Right. Well, we'll we're, we're going to be getting to that discussion in just a little bit. But before we get there, Kate, um, uh, and before we talk about Randy Fine, for example, I, 
remind us, please, who are the three finalists the FAU Selection Committee did announce for, pre- for new president? Mm-hmm. So the three finalists are Sean Buck, who's the superintendent of the U.S. Naval Academy, Michael Hartline, who's the dean of the College of Business at Florida State University, and Jose Sartorelli, who's a former chancellor of the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Mm-hmm. So all have advanced degrees, experience at high-level leadership within major institutions of, of higher education. Um, as one FAU faculty member put it to me, you know, there's only so much you can glean from a resume, but based on the resumes, they seem eminently qualified. Now this week, a big DeSantis ally, conservative culture warrior Chris Rufo, tried to derail the candidacy of one of the finalists, Admiral, Admiral Buck. Uh, what, what's Rufo accusing Buck of? So he described Buck as a woke leader. Ah, woke, okay. So again, yeah, a harsh condemnation in conservative circles these days. Mm-hmm. Um, Rufo pointed to diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts at the U.S. Naval Academy, also referencing vaccine ma- mandates that were in place for service members. Um, and, you know, these are our flashpoints, talking points for conservative culture warriors in this time. Um, in a statement, yeah. Buck told me he's still very much in the search, uh, looking forward to the process and, and the chance to dispel any inaccurate mischaracterizations of mm-hmm. who he is. And this sort of reminds us then what this dispute is really all about. So, so Kate, how, how would DeSantis's candidate, State Representative Fine, run FAU in that regard if he were president, then this is sort of hearkening back to what John was just telling us on his call. Mm -hmm. So Representative Fine is a self-described conservative firebrand. He's carried a number of Governor DeSantis's legislative priorities, especially on on these culture war issues. Uh, He was a sponsor of the measure known as the Don't Say Gay Law, legislation restricting drag performances. Um, He's also known to be quite combative, uh, lashing out as his, at his critics. Um, and so certainly the fear is that, uh, and, and the expectation you know, from critics is that Fine would be in line with this conservative ideological overhaul. Right. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the presidential selection chaos at Florida Atlantic University. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Professor Goddard, do you and the FAU faculty and students fear, uh, going back to this issue, that if Governor DeSantis and the state were able to ultimately impose someone like Randy Fine on the university as president, would FAU then face what is happening, as John said, at New College of Florida, an attempt to morph it into a conservative Christian-style institution? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our concern is that we know exactly how Randy Fine would run our institution. He'd run it into the damn ground. And overall, what we need are leaders in higher education who are qualified. It doesn't matter what their politics are as long as they can do the job. And even what we've seen at New College with Richard Corcoran, I mean, yeah, he's he's done a lot of partisan actions, but from what we can see, none of them have helped the institution. None of them have been new or exciting ideas. They're losing faculty much faster than they can replace them. I mean, it's what we're seeing is people who only know how to tear down and not to build and sustain high-quality programs. FAU doesn't need that. South Florida doesn't need that. The, the American people don't need that. Kate, do higher education education experts themselves fear that agenda as well? 
Well, certainly in, in hearing the concerns of FAU faculty going back for months, absolutely, they've been sounding the alarm on this. Uh, you know, the, the fear of political interference in this search was always part of the picture. Um, and, you know, there are concerns that even just the mention of Representative Fine being interested, you know, back when that news first broke, that that yeah. alone would scare away qualified candidates. Um, and there was, in, in looking back um, over some of the past stories, you know, there was a striking quote from Sally Mason, who is one of the search consultants hired by the university. She's a former president of the University of Iowa. And she told FAU faculty back in April, you know, paraphrasing here, um, she said, we're going to maintain integrity so you can at least stand up and, and say we did our best. But if the governor wants to ignore that, if the board of governors wants to ignore that, if the board of trustees wants to ignore that, there's not much we can do. Mm-hmm. And so in a sense, kind of, you know, foreshadowing how limited uh, faculty and, and the community mm-hmm. are and when these decisions are made. Professor Goddard, another complication in all of this is a new state law passed last year that shields the identities of university president candidates until finalists are announced. How, how did that play into the FAU controversy currently? Well, it it's shown what the major problem was going to be as soon as they as soon as the legislature passed this law. We've been saying it for years that if you don't have public oversight on the process, you don't have a means of holding people accountable. Right now, we can't even prove if Randy Fine applied for the job. Uh-huh. We can't see how many other applicants there were and how and we can't really show how he was definitely at the bottom of the list. Like we can't do that as the public because the legislature decided it was better to do these searches in the dark. We would love to see the legislature come back this year and revoke that law because Uh this is showing exactly what the problem is that they've created. Kate Payne, what happens now if the state's investigation of the FAU search committee determines state law was violated, let's say? Where would that throw the search process? Well, the fear is that the search could be scrapped, that it would have to start over entirely. And if that were to happen, you know, a big question is, would these three finalists commit to doing this process all over again? You know, the fear is that this would scare them off. Uh, Two of the candidates, Dr. Sardarelli and Admiral Buck, have told me that at this point they plan to stay in it. Um, I haven't heard back from Dr. Hartline. Um, But there is also a concern that there could be um, change on FAU's Board of Trustees, you know, retribution there, Um, some of whom are appointed directly by the governor, others that are appointed by the Board of Governors. Um, So, you know, thinking through that, if there's a different Board of Trustees, potentially a different field of candidates, uh, this could produce a very different outcome. And Professor Goddard, how is all of this chaos likely to impact Florida Atlantic University in terms of costs, including, let's say, even the potential loss of donors? I think it's going to have an incredibly detrimental effect. I mean, students and faculty are frustrated, the community's upset, donors are angered. People are not going to want to continue to participate in supporting this university. We've already seen a brain drain beginning around the state, and we're anticipating anywhere from a 20 to 30 percent loss of qualified faculty by September. This is not going to help that problem. It's just going to exacerbate it. Kate, do you agree then that in the bigger picture, this battle could have a a, a deleterious effect on higher education, Florida's higher education reputation in general? Sure. I mean, students are watching this. Faculty are watching this. You know, faculty who are here in the state of Florida who might consider to come here. You know, anecdotally, we're already hearing that 
yeah, searches for professors are, are coming up and empty handed because folks don't want to deal with this political right. environment. Kate Payne is WLRN's education reporter. FAU English professor Andrew Goddard heads the United Faculty of Florida. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come, from Lionel Messi to Haiti to Little Haiti. It's all about soccer right now, folks. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Miami is buzzing about two big soccer moments taking place this weekend. The first is here tonight when Argentine legend Lionel Messi, who many consider the greatest player of all time, appears in his first major league soccer game with his new team, our team, Inter-Miami. Messi's coming to play here may be the biggest event in South Florida sports history. The second is a world away in Australia tomorrow when Haiti's women's national soccer team plays its first ever World Cup game. The Haitian women, known as Les Grenadiers, have been an extraordinary psychological boost to extraordinarily crisis-ravaged Haiti. But they've also been a morale lift for little Haiti and the Haitian diaspora here. In fact, one of the Haitian women's team's goalies, Naomi Amboise, has been playing here this past year with Little Haiti FC, or Little Haiti Football Club. Do you plan to watch Messi in Haiti? Will all this help make Miami a true soccer town now? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is Chris Whittingham. He's a commentator for the Apple TV soccer streaming service MLS Season Pass, which is streaming Messi's first Inter-Miami game tonight. Also with me here in the studio is Pat Sanangelo, co-founder of Little Haiti FC. Great to have you both here. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me. Chris, it's hard to imagine more hype around Messi's arrival in Miami than we've already seen, but tonight promises to bring it. Just how huge is his debut here, not just for Inter-Miami, but for Major League Soccer? Absolutely enormous. I think from a club standpoint, I think they've had a few different chances at first impressions, but one that they're probably perhaps not more prepared for than this one. If you go back to when the club started, they played their first two games of the 2020 MLS season before COVID eventually shut down the season for four months. Right. They then come back in an, in an Orlando bubble that was not well-suited for them to have success considering everything going on around the club. And sort of once the stadium started to open again, you don't really have that big launch. This is really Miami's first attempt at a big home launch in their club's history, which is kind of remarkable considering they're playing their fourth season. But I think this is a chance for a bunch of people to come to Dry Pink Stadium and see the greatest player of all time play. And I think the hope is, is that results will be better than they have been in the MLS regular season. It is worth noting that the match is in a different competition than the MLS regular right. season. I wanted a to competition bring... called League's Cup. Exactly. I wanted to ask you about that. And again, you, you say home, but home right now still being Fort Lauderdale. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're, and and the this, this game will take place at 8 o'clock this evening. And again, remind our listeners exactly what tonight's game versus uh, Cruz Azul is about. Yeah, so it is a new competition that MLS are starting called League's Cup, uh, which is the first ever time that two leagues have come together to form a sort of World Cup-style tournament. So there's 47 teams between MLS and the Mexican top flight Liga Mekis, and 
they will all be thrown into various groups, and then the groups will turn into a knockout round. So Miami are playing one of the Giants Mexican football, Cruz Azul, their four gigantes, as they are referred to, mm-hmm. and Cruz Azul are coming to town tonight uh, for Inter-Miami's first ever game in this new competition. Now, what's happening tonight, and then moving forward, what do you think will be the immediate effects for the team and the league? Well, I think the immediate effects are... I think, first off, from a TV standpoint, this is the first year of a 10-year TV deal with Apple TV, and I think Apple have certainly thrown their full weight behind this in terms of really making it uh, a big deal, and I think you'll start to see the rewards of that tonight. I think you'll see a ton of people around the world tuning in to see Lionel Messi's first game in Miami. There's sort of that immediate attention effect, which has seen... Inter Miami increased their Instagram following to become the fourth biggest Instagram following in United States pro sports, bigger than any right. NFL team, any baseball team, any hockey team, only trailing behind three NBA teams. So you have sort of that immediate right. attention effect. And I think on the field, there is the very real chance that Lionel Messi, by virtue of his incredible stature and ability within the game, to lift Miami from a team that has not won any of their last 11 league matches to right. becoming a very good team. And some of that will require a lot of integration, a lot of coaching from the manager, Tata Martino, but but I think it could have that kind of immediate impact. Right. And what about the long-term effects, though? And I should also mention that that Apple TV contract has a lot to do with the fact that this makes Messi at at about $50 million a year the highest-paid athlete in the United States right now, right? Yes. Right. So, but what will the longer term effects be? I mean, did, are we looking at the, the the chance of the MLS rising to the level of the English Premier League or, or Spain's La Liga if if if, if this keeps up? Well, I I do think that Messi is sort of a one-of-one, right? And so you will see a a, a near-term interest, and I think the job now for Major League Soccer is to capture a longer-term interest. If you're talking about competing with the Premier League, the Bundesliga, La Liga, you're talking about spending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to bring over the very best players. Exactly, yeah. That, that, that is the ultimate goal and not something that I think can happen in two and a half years. But I think what it can be is a sort of kick up the backside, as it were, to really start to step up that level and start to bring a higher level of player into Major League Soccer. And I think yep. ultimately everything in soccer in America is a step forward. I think everyone is sort of waiting for a boom moment where all of a sudden it takes over uh, baseball and hockey and American football. But it's always going to happen gradually. I think this is another uh, sort of probably longer step than the previous steps that came before it. But Messi's entering a much stronger league than, mm-hmm. say, David Beckham did in 2007 when the league only had 12 well, teams and was struggling to find a media rights partner. Right. Well, along those lines, let's set the, let's set the hype aside for a second and talk about the soccer will Hmm. Messi really mesh with this inner Miami team I mean he's a classic number 10 as we say in soccer parlance the the playmaker the quarterback on the pitch but some soccer writers have pointed out recently that he may not mesh all that well with inner Miami's current roster and system what do you think I think with the system, he'll be just fine. I think it's with the level of player. You have to remember that Lionel Messi at club level, 17 years at Barcelona, two years in Paris, is playing with the very, very, very best players in the world. And that is not only in terms of technical ability, it's also in terms of the brain, right? It's in terms of the runs that you make. It's in terms of how the overall game fits together and finding the solutions on the field. And I think... The current Inter Miami players do probably probably don't think the game at the level that Messi does. The question is, can he still coexist within that group? And I think that really is the job of the manager Tata Martino, who they brought over uh, was last right. man- uh, managing the Mexican na- 
national team, but has managed an MLS before, has won MLS Cup before, while also having managed Messi previously at Argentina and at Barcelona. And, and so and, can he can he meld the two experiences to give Messi the best platform to succeed? And, and really quickly, just how important was Inter Miami's signing of Messi's old Barcelona teammate Sergio Busquets in that regard? Massive. I, I think Sergio Busquets is, is a player that uh, is about dictating tempo in midfield. He's about getting on the ball and controlling the game. Right. And you mentioned that sort of quarterback uh, ability. He, he does that from a deeper position on the field. So really, mm -hmm. yeah. his biggest job is to get Messi the ball in the kind of positions that he likes to have it in. And okay. I think it's good to have a player that sort of thinks the game mm -hmm. that way. Another player with previous uh, yeah. with... Lionel Messi is Jordi Alba, who uh, Inter-Miami mm -hmm. announced yesterday as their newest signing at left back. Uh, Tata Martino is also bringing over some younger players from South America to try mm -hmm. and add some more running and energy to the team because right. uh, with age and experience comes sort of less defensive work. You still have to get the defensive work done in the game, and I think right. uh, they're, they're going to have to figure out all those balances over mm -hmm. the course of the next few months. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about all the big soccer goings-on here this weekend, mm -hmm. Messi, Haiti, and more. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Pat Sanangelo, let's remind people that for a lot of folks in Miami, there's another big soccer happening this weekend, and that's the Haitian women's national team playing their first game ever in the World Cup tomorrow against England and Australia. How huge is this? Not just for Haiti, but for Haitians here in the diaspora, for example. Well, right now in, uh, you know, Haiti's having its challenges right now. So a lot of the, the best least. players um, from Haiti have landed in the U.S. And when they get to the U.S., they're finding Little Haiti FC. Why are they coming to Little Haiti FC? It's the only free-to-play competitive youth soccer program in the whole state of Florida and possibly in the United States. We don't know of any other. And again, Little, Little Haiti FC meaning Little Haiti Football Club. That's yeah. correct. And a, very, a celebrated youth soccer program uh, that you helped co-found nine years ago. That's correct. We started with just high school kids from Miami Edison High. The soccer coach there, Gomez Lalu, was concerned because be every year he would have a great team and the following year the kids wouldn't show up. What happened to the kids? They were on drugs, they were in gangs, they were in jail, or worse. So he, he came to me, I was in the mayor's office at the time with Mayor Rigolato. We spoke to Mayor Rigolato, he said, okay, what do you need? We need a place to play. Mayor Rigolato provided the field, Lalu provided the football. Today we have over 200 kids from the Little Haiti community, age five years old to young adult, playing world-class soccer right here in Little Haiti. And this past year, one of those players was actually one of the Haitian women's national team's goalies, uh, as I mentioned before, Naomi Amboise, um, which Little Haiti FC essentially took in uh, this past year. Tell us about her. Well, we take in a lot of players because, you know, these people are extremely in need um, a lot of times, you know, they have family here in the U.S. They want to come here. They're great soccer players, but the, their uh, families and the people here can't afford to, to take them. So Little Haiti FC somehow find, figures out how to get them in school. And in the last eight years, 100% of the kids in this soccer program graduated high school. Right. Last two years, Tim, every high school senior has has 
graduated high school and is attending college. And Tim, we're talking about the entire Miami Edison High School men and women's soccer team Mm -hmm. and the entire North Miami High School men and women's soccer team all belong to Little Haiti FC. All of them are going to college, Tim. And Naomi Amboise herself just got a soccer scholarship to Florida National University here in Hialeah, right? And again, she was on her way from Haiti to France got to U.S., found out she did not have the proper paperwork to go to France, was basically stranded in Miami, found out about us. We took her in. Mm-hmm. She played tremendous soccer for the last season, oh, yeah. and now the World Cup uh, mm-hmm. coach from France called her up, and now she's currently in Australia, Tim. Right, and she'll be playing in the World Cup. Chris, I want to turn back to you and ask about a soccer issue here many of us have raised in recent years, and that's the reality that soccer in South Florida is still very much a white suburban club culture that needs to reach out more to kids outside that bubble. Even with Messi here, would Inter-Miami be doing itself a fan-based development favor by engaging kids in communities where soccer really doesn't have a presence? Uh, I, I do. I, I do think that Miami, uh, first off, their story to tell on youth development this year is a pretty good one. Um, they've brought through seven players that have come through their youth setup, uh, a couple of whom are a feature as well for the Dominican Right, Republic. and I should mention that Little Haiti FC plays that, that youth team for Inter-Miami. Correct. Uh, and so uh, two, two players have featured for the Dominican Republic national team. Um, and I think overall, uh, they've done a really good job in terms of youth development. But I've always thought that South Florida is the most talent-rich area of the country for soccer just because of the sheer number of micro-communities within our area that can produce players for whom soccer is their number one sport. And so I absolutely think they can continue to do this work. But I think for a very young club, normally teams start producing academy players that feature in the first team eight, ten years into their existence. For a year four MLS side to have six or seven players that feature in the first team mm-hmm. is pretty solid, but obviously uh, every club can do more and, and affordability uh, is, yeah. is a huge part of that issue as well. Pat, I know this is a concern of yours as well. In the 30 seconds we have left here, beyond the arrival of Messi, what does soccer as a sport need to do in Miami and South Florida to bring more kids into it? Well, the problem is that the kids, when you, watch, when you go to a, a field that's has a lot of people playing soccer. You'll see a bunch of kids on the sideline, especially when the big names like uh, Paris Saint-Germain and Barcelona Academy are playing. Those little kids on the sideline are watching because their parents cannot afford to put those kids in the academy. So that's what we need, more opportunities. More opportunities. Pat San Angelo is co-founder of the Little Haiti FC. Chris Whittingham is a commentator for MLS Season Pass. Gentlemen, thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Finally on the roundup, Animal Takeover. If you live in Miami, you no doubt recognize that bird call, peacocks. They're beautiful, but they can be bullies, roaming through your neighborhood like the sharks and the jets, occupying your roof with a shrill cry that sounds like a cat meowing into a bullhorn. And their population is exploding. So one South Florida town, Pinecrest, has decided to take back its streets. With permission from Miami-Dade County, it's hired a trapper and a veterinarian to sterilize many of its peacocks, including vasectomies for the males. It's an experiment that could be instructive for other fowl-friendly villages like next-door Palmetto Bay, 
which this year stoked community anger when it euthanized more than 20 ducks because of reports they too were acting aggressively against people. And this week we learned that as many as 100 lionhead bunny rabbits have invaded the Broward County town of Wilton Manors. In reality, they were illegally released there, but the community nonetheless is having to figure out how to resolve this hair-raising problem without wildlife casualties. But that's South Florida for you. Alligators on golf courses, iguanas dropping from trees, and now Thumper takes over your lawn. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Amy Sanchez with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answered the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend. Gracias, Messi. Obrigado.